Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Well, good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, and glad to be with you as we kick off another week of Cresta in the Afternoon. Let me tell you what uh, some of the things we're going to be looking at today. In a recent meeting with the International Theological Commission, uh, and this group does work with the Dicastery uh, for the Doctrine of the Faith, Pope Francis said that one of the great sins we have had is, quote, masculinizing the Church. And he observed how few of the people present at this meeting, at, I guess the Theological Commission, were women. Okay, um, you know, we've said for a long time that uh, apart from uh, ordination, uh, there are plenty of places for women to serve, and, you know, if there's been oversights, uh, we should remedy those problems. But in a broader sense, what does it mean to masculinize the Church, exactly what's meant there, and what does it mean to see the Church as feminine? Dr. Monica Miller joining us, uh, she has written on this, uh, for many years, uh, we've talked about her book, The Authority of Women in the Catholic Church, which really grew out of a larger work called Sexuality and Authority in the Catholic Church. And so she's going to be joining us to talk about this very, very important topic. One of the things that people continue to think uh, is that until women are ordained to the ministerial priesthood, until that happens, the Catholic Church has to be regarded as anti-woman. Yes, it's crazy, but it is, it is a persistent uh, falsehood that runs out there in our popular culture. Also coming up today, we're going to be looking at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, why it still matters. Dr. Marianne Glendon, former U.S. Ambassador to the Holy See and Professor of Law at Harvard Law School, will be joining us. And then what the sacraments really are. David Fagerberg joins us, author of Liturgical Mysticism. You can see we've got that and more, by the way. But first, the headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News. For Monday, December 11th, it's the Feast of St. Pope Damasus I. Today's news brought to you by the Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. A Nebraska priest was murdered after being stabbed at a rectory. The Archdiocese of Omaha says that Father Stephen Guckshell was assaulted at St. John Baptist Parish in Fort Calhoun. Police have arrested a suspect. No motive has been given, but the sheriff's office says the incident involved an attempted break-in. Father Guckshell has faced controversy in the past. In 2007, he pleaded guilty to embezzling more than $100,000 from St. Patrick's Church in Omaha, receiving five years of probation. The president of the University of Pennsylvania is resigning after a congressional hearing about anti-Semitism on college campuses. 
The House is investigating Harvard, MIT, and UPenn after their presidents failed to explicitly say calling for the genocide of Jews violates their code of conduct. Saturday, UPenn President Liz McGill announced that she's resigning effective immediately. More on this story with Jay Green in the second hour of today's program. The Air Force says a member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard acted alone in allegedly leaking classified documents earlier this year. 21-year-old Guardsman Jack Teixeira was indicted on six federal counts of transmission of national defense information. According to a newly released report on the investigation, 15 other personnel in his unit have been disciplined for dereliction of duty in the case. And Israeli forces are battling Hamas fighters in Gaza's two largest cities as the conflict rages for a third month. Qatari officials say they're attempting to restart hostage release negotiations after a breakdown in talks. This comes as Israel released the names of 20 hostages held by Hamas that are believed to be dead. From your Avi Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Well, I said at the top of the hour, uh, Pope Francis met recently with the International Theological Commission. And he said that one of the great sins we have had is masculinizing the church. And he observed how few of the people present at this meeting of the International Theological Commission were women. Uh, The question is, of course, what does it mean to masculinize the church? Uh, What does it mean to emphasize the church as feminine? And uh, is it simply a matter of counting heads, uh, male heads or female heads, that attend uh, theological commission meetings? With me right now, Dr. Monica Miller, who knows a great deal about this. She's Director of Citizens for a Pro-Life Society, the author of many books, including Sexuality and Authority in the Catholic Church, and then another work called The Authority of Women in the Catholic Church. And uh, Monica, good to have you here. Yeah, I'm really Really excited to be here. Yeah. Now this 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 was your doctoral dissertation. It was wasn't my doctoral it? dissertation. Yeah. So I mean, you are. This is something you never lose. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's, it becomes part of your. Right. Part. I was fortunate enough to get it published as a book. Yeah. Yes. No. That's that's wonderful. Um, let's start with some some basic basic things. First of all, did do you know if the if Pope Francis had anything more to say? Uh, on this masculinizing the church idea? Or well, he, I think there's a, there was also a comment that we need to, I don't know exactly the verb that he used, but discover, realize, um, appreciate um, that the church is feminine. Yeah. That's and, not a problem, right? <laughs> it, well, it shouldn't be, but <laughs> this was actually something, something he said fairly early in his pontificate. Um, where he called for what, what we need is a theology of women in the church. And so that's why I jumped on that and, and got the authority of women in yeah. the Catholic Church published, mm-hmm. as, a, as frankly, as a response yeah. to, to what the Pope was asking for. Yeah, sure, sure. So. Well, let's talk about this. Um, first of all, the, this persistent idea that unless women are ordained to the ministerial priesthood, the church has an, um, is suppressing um, somehow the, the the full potential of women within the Catholic Church. How, how right. does that? There's no matter what you say to people, no matter how careful you are at explaining 
what is authority? Mm-hmm. Uh, what does it mean to be uh, a Catholic priest, ministerial priest? There's still this kind of popular notion that uh, if you don't have a proper representation of women in the ordained ministerial priesthood, that the church is somehow doing something unjust right. to women. Well, there are so many mistakes that feed yeah. that narrative. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and first of all, one of the mistakes is a confusion, um, a, a making making two things synonymous. Um, uh, uh, authority is associated with office. One must have recognizable, ritualized office, and then you have authority. Um, the other the other mistake has to do with, frankly, I mean maybe this is the fundamental error, um, not uh, not understanding, not appreciating the essence of the covenant that uh, exists between God and his people. And um, the covenant, whether we like it or not, is nuptial. The covenant between God and his people is is the marriage. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Human marriage is its sign. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So if we don't get back to, or, or maybe finally discovering, um, the meaning of the of the covenant and the way in which, as as my book, sexuality and authority, in the Catholic Church, uh, this is ba- you know the basic exposition of my work is to understand the the marital order of the covenant of redemption. This is not a nice way of talking. This is not just poetry. Right. Uh, these are not just uh, words, and we can substitute something else for the reality yeah. or whatever. This goes right to the very essence of the The very essence of the covenant yeah. itself is, is nuptial. And there, then the other mistake is, there, and, I, and, and this is the first thing I actually treat in, in, in my book, um, is a mistaken idea of what is authority itself. Because... Um, you know, going back to what I said regarding office, public, recognized, ritualized, um, formal yeah. <laughs> office. So we we almost universally this is a problem that we we associate um, authority with power, and they are not the same thing. Right. Um, uh, and I, so I, I want to, I, I want to offer a corrective, if you will. Power is something that is quantifiable. Um, you can measure it. It has weight. It has volume. Um, h- how, how much land do you own? How much money do you have? How, how large is your army? Um, how, how much do you weigh? <laughs> how, yeah. many, how, how many muscles do you have? I, so you can actually measure it. And uh, so women want to kind of get in on that, all right? And if if women don't get in on the measurable, the quantifiable mm-hmm. um, kind of power, then they they automatically think that they've been uh, shortchanged and left out. Authority um, is a very different thing, and authority has to do with the ability to give life, and then the right or rights that you have as a life giver. Hmm. To make sure that what you have uh, in, brought into existence will be brought to its fulfillment. 
No, authority has some connection then with what? Like giving life, uh, being an author, being exactly. An author, Going back life. to the yeah. Latin, exact, exactly. Yeah. To be an origin, to be the beginning, to be the source of something. Yeah. I already, fi- already find it instructive that right in the creeds, uh, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, it, 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 the first identifiable mark of God is um, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty. Mm-hmm. But what is okay? We go to the next, the next section there, the the you know the the maker of heaven and earth. Okay, so what does it mean for God to be Almighty? Okay, it's not just that He's going to throw His weight around. <laughs> all right, He's right. going to dominate. Um, he's going to enforce um, because He's bigger than you. All right, so <laughs> right. He is Almighty, and in the sense that He has, He is the origin of all that exists. Yeah, yeah. So. Then the question becomes, if, 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 the covenant of redemption is inherently marital, then automatically male and female sexuality has uh, sacramental transcendent meaning. We image that covenant as male uh, and and as female. Marriage is not just some social invention that we can redefine as we change our cultural evolution moves along right right but this is you know things are things are about as bad as as they've ever been um on this whole question of the meaning of gender right and and if we can't get that right we're never going to understand we're never going to ultimately appreciate that um jesus came deliberately as a bridegroom that this has something to do, his male gender actually has something to do with his salvific mission. Yeah. That he comes to wed a people. Good. Jesus Very is good. a married man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, to whom is he wedded? Yeah. All right, to his feminine church. Yeah. The church, these are not, again, let's, let's get this right, these are not just nice ways of talking. Um, this, this, is the, this is the reality itself, and, and that's why... When you're when you're created male or female, um, this is something very solemn. This is something holy. This is this is the way that your your gender is taken up into the order of redemption itself. Yes. And by the way, whether you like it or not, you're going to come back resurrected, <laughs> male or male female. Or female right? yeah. yeah, that's right. Right. Yeah. right. yeah, that. I mean, this is something which I don't, again, I I don't, I don't think our culture uh, thinks they they do not approach these questions the way that uh, serious Catholics do, and it's really frustrating because you're you end up talking past each mm. other. So when Edith Stein, you quote Edith Stein in your your book here, um, woman is called upon to embody in her highest and purest development the essence of the church, to be its symbol. I love that. It's a great quote, and it's 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 very sobering. It's inspirational, but it's also sobering. Um, Well, and and by the well, here's the thing, Al. That should be taught in every catechism class beginning in the second grade. That's right. 
Okay, they, so that you are you are fed with this this truth as you're growing into your Catholic faith, your Christian faith. That's right. Uh, not, this isn't just an afterthought, or, or or let's get to it when you know maybe when we read a theology book, yeah, yeah. okay, or read maybe a papal but document. This the ecclesial culture we've built over the at least the last generation. I can't speak beyond that. Mm-hmm. But it, it, pretty much, we've adopted the world's understanding of these things, and then tried to figure out how church teaching might plug into it, right. rather than working from our own uh, uh, experience of divine truth and developing a ecclesial culture out of that. So, I mean, so this, that's that's yeah. my challenge, I guess, uh, to to, to um, catechesis that. Again, starting in the second grade, when you send your kids off to either Catholic school or catechism classes or whatever, I mean, this should, this should be oh yeah, right from the start. Nature of the women is image nuptial. the church in relation to Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, Jesus comes um, gendered. <laughs> gendered. Yes. I mean, he comes as a male because he is a bridegroom. And this is critical. Uh, it's as you say. It's not just a nice bit of poetry. Uh, it is, in fact, the essence of his redemptive mission uh, to uh, bring his bride uh, into full union with him. Well, I I even argue that his sacrifice is a masculine act. Yeah, talk to me. Uh, that he he gives to his people what she cannot give to herself. Um, to and to offer to offer his life for her is and and um, there was a there was a marvel. In fact, I use I, I use this author in my book, Father Walter Ong O N G. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, He taught at Cornell yes. for many years, and he wrote a book called Fighting for Life. He kind of regretted the title later on, but okay. So he wrote this book, Fighting Fighting for Life. Why don't you hold it there? Okay. I hear the music coming up. I want to pick up on this. Was I wonder if there's the same? Was he the same guy as the Kierkegaard scholar? Possibly, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I just remember seeing a bunch of books with a name like that. Long. On it. So, yeah. yeah. All right, Dr. Monica Miller, my guest. Our topic is sexuality and authority in the Catholic Church. Understanding the nature of the covenant is nuptial. We have a bridegroom and a bride. Father Benedict Rochelle. Some great people have shown respect for God. Can I read you a little quotation from Albert Einstein, who many times showed a great respect for religion and was one of the great admirers of Pope Pius XII for his stand against the Holocaust during the Second World War. Einstein wrote, The fairest thing we can experience is the mysterious is the fundamental emotion that stands at the cradle of all true art and science. A knowledge of the existence of something we can't penetrate, of the manifestations of the profoundest reason and the most radiant beauty, which are only accessible to our minds in the most elementary form. It is this knowledge and this emotion that constitute the truly religious attitude. Oh my, so beautifully said. The people you know and trust are on EWTN. Does the fourth commandment only order us to honor our father and our mother? According to the Catholic Catechism, it also obliges us to give honor and respect to all whom for our good God has vested with his authority. Respecting the fourth commandment, says the Catechism, brings its own reward. 
not only with spiritual fruits, but temporal benefits of peace and prosperity, whereas failure to observe the commandment brings harm to individuals and communities. We are reminded that marriage and the family is ordered to the good of the spouses and the procreation and education of children. The Catechism states a man and a woman united in marriage together with their children is what forms a family. God instituted the human family when he created man and woman and instructed them to increase and multiply. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families, along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Monica Miller. Uh, She's the author of Sexuality and Authority in the Catholic Church and the Authority of Women in the Catholic Church. We are looking at the nature of the covenant is nuptial. Uh, Jesus is the bridegroom to his church, the bride. And uh, when we went to the break, you were talking to us about uh, Dr. Walter Ong. Right. Ong argues that a man needs to show that he's different from women. Uh, his, his argument is that basically nature itself is feminine. <laughs> uh, the, femininity is the thing that's everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, masculinity is um, 
the oddity in a sense. Mm-hmm. And so for a man has to prove his masculine. Women do not have, this is a beautiful argument. And also uh, um, George Gilder is, uh, yeah. is a, one of the best books I ever read was uh, Sexual Suicide. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I think it was published in 1973. Wow. And I quote him, too, in, in my book. But the the point being that males have to show that they're male. They have to prove it by feats of courage mm-hmm. uh, and uh, of, of, of physical prowess. Um, so, you know, in Africa, uh, and before, you, before a, a, an African male in the tribe can, can be worthy of marriage, he has to kill a lion. I mean, he mm-hmm. has to do some, something brave. Yes. Okay. In Ireland, you've you got to build a house. Right? Mm-hmm. So you've got to show that you can actually, you know, that you're actually, uh, you, you actually are male. Uh, women don't have to prove their femininity. Their bodies are reminding us all the time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Of the, the our our femininity, our feminine nature is interior uh, to us, and so uh, there's a certain um, security, frankly, that women have in their sexuality that men don't. And this yeah. goes, of course, on the psychological level. So to show that I'm I'm uh, capable of caring for another, yeah. um, which will require effort, bravery, um, ingenuity, and and even come on, even in the even in the world of nature, the 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 uh, the, the the female animal is very drab. <laughs> the males are colorful, and mm. they have to they have to prance around, and they have to they have to lure right, and they have yeah. to say, "Here I am, and I'm 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 the best of my kind." Yeah. <laughs> so you you want to have babies with me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, well, this uh, this also speaks to the idea that men are more aggressive than women. That's why men commit acts of violence more than because they're they're not putting their 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 uh, their masculinity where it needs to be right. at, at the service of his wife and his family. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's right. Um, so we then this again the idea of authority uh, is connected to the idea of author authority is life giving yeah so and, in right. that respect it's hard to deny that women have authority <laughs> <laughs> yes thank you it's, that's excellent um and i hope maybe we yet before we end this interview today we could talk a little more about that but to me I don't see how theologically and doctrinally we can get away from this, because St. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, uh, has a most remarkable passage. It is. Um, This is not just, how shall I say, you know, some sort of spiritual uh, nice idea, okay, because he he talks about how um, men uh, should love their wives as, as Christ Love the church. It's Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 25. Um, And then he talks about how, uh, what does it mean for a husband to love his wife as Jesus loved the church? He gave himself up for her. Yeah. To, to, To do what? To give her life. Right to to make uh, to make of her something without stain or wrinkle or anything of that sort, uh, and then and then it, what's remarkable is that when he talks about um, 
the relationship between Jesus and the church, he doesn't even have an introduction. He just goes right to Genesis chapter 2, verse number 24. No introduction. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he gives the ultimate exegesis of this passage from Genesis chapter 2. This is a great mystery, mm-hmm. for it it has to do with Christ and the church. Now, what is he saying? <laughs> He's saying, folks, that right from the get-go, okay, beginning with a capital B, in the beginning, God created human sexuality, male and female, specifically to, as sacramental signs yeah. of another reality, Okay, the relationship, the unity, the bond between Christ and his people. Yeah. You cannot get away from that. And and, and uh, so I'll, I'll say I, I rest my case, Your Honor. <laughs> 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 right. and, so so off, off the air, we were talking a little bit about this, but I'll ask this question again because listeners didn't hear it. So, you know, I'm, we're talking, and I'm, I'm sure the vast majority of our listeners are saying, right. Yeah, yeah, this is great. How then do so many uh, putatively Catholic theologians um, dismiss this essential relationship Mm. between male and female, between, again, the bridegroom and the bride, and they seem to have no uh, respect for the, the fact that Jesus... In, that the Son of God, incarnate, mm. uh, was in fact a bridegroom, male. He's playing male to the church, which is female. Well, I, I know that a lot of our difficulty, even in this very this very moment, um, has to do with a pessimistic, dualist, Gnostic uh, heresy. Um, we still find the body to be limiting. Yeah. And if we can only get around it, then everything will be well. And it's kind of like the body's in the way. The body is in the way. <laughs> so let us emphasize uh, imaging. And even this is kind of a, maybe a, a weird thing to say, but well, let us um, appreciate. Uh, what it means to be human according to the spirit alone. And then the argument would be that according to the spirit, the soul, which isn't true, but their argument would be the soul is sexless. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we can all image Christ by his love, Mm -hmm. by his charity, by his teachings. And and so it doesn't make any difference whether whether you're uh, uh, gendered uh, mm-hmm. male or, or female. Yeah. It's all uh, has to do with with the the sexless Jesus and the sexless soul, and 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 we and then we rise above and we resolve all of the tensions and the competition and the envy that comes with the world of matter. <laughs> yeah. 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 So how would they see the resurrection of the body then? How would a person what what would be their identity in a glorified that's a good, body? Well, I that's a a very good question and 
I I, I don't know. I'm yeah. going to be honest with you. I, that's I have I a suspicion I, that they actually end up denying I, that's my the resurrection guess. of the body. Right, right, uh, right. You know, they, 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 well, they, even and, well. <laughs> That's exactly what the Gnostics did. Exactly. Okay, yeah. this was just a spiritual experience of the apostles. They, it wasn't that their eye, their physical eye, fell on a physical body, Jesus' body risen out of the tomb, complete with his wounds. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. That's right. Okay. Oh, absolutely. There's real continuity there. The New Testament wants you to know that it may be a glorified body, but it's the same body that went in. Yes, right. The same body that hung on the cross, the yep. same body that raised Lazarus from the tomb and was born of mary that's the one but yeah it's you know i've i've made some kind of i don't know um uh, humorous comments that uh, the uh, gnosticism will be the the heresy that never dies and it will be with us five seconds before the coming of jesus <laughs> it's <laughs> still there yeah it's still yeah. it's still with yeah. us yeah um but I'd like to, you know, to get on to, you know, how is the church a, a, a woman? How yeah. is the church yes. female? Let's do that. Um, there is a, a most amazing quotation, going back to the nuptial order, uh, the nuptial reality of the covenant between God and his people. Uh, St. Augustine, God bless him, and he was a Neoplatonist, okay, um, in his, in his uh, philosophy, mm-hmm. but yet... Sometimes you just can't baptize Plato. Right. Okay. Right. <laughs> you gotta drop him. Um, and and so Augustine will start acting and thinking and writing as a Catholic. Okay. So this is this is one of those instances. So he has his commentary, Augustine's commentary on Psalm one twenty seven, and and he goes immediately um, to Jesus and the Church, and he's and so Jesus is the new Adam. Okay, so how is how is Jesus the new Adam in relationship to the new Eve? Yes, okay, right. So here here is this this amazing uh, statement that he makes. He says, "But where did he sleep?" In other words, Jesus, mm-hmm. the new Adam, because a- the first Adam had to be put into a deep sleep, and God took out a rib and built up from that rib, built up a uh, you know that rib into a woman. Yeah. Okay, so but where did Jesus sleep? On the cross. When he slept on the cross, he bore a sign. Yea, he fulfilled what had been signified in Adam. For when Adam was asleep, a rib was drawn from him and Eve was created. So also while the Lord slept on the cross, his side was transfixed with a spear and the sacraments flowed forth Hmm. whence the church was born. For the church, the Lord's bride, was created from his side, as Eve was created from the side of Adam. But as she was made from his side, no otherwise than while sleeping, so the church was created from his side, the side of Jesus, no otherwise than while he was dying." Oh my Man, gosh! It's, we, this is theology into poetry. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I it's, love it. It's beautiful, uh, beautiful. Then again, uh, many Christians uh, who were not in full communion with the Catholic Church accept, uh, really do accept this uh, Adam Christ parallel. Yes. Well, and well, and, and, and it's just, in Paul. You can't get away from right. it. I, you know, uh, I would urge them though <laughs> to ask if he's the new Adam. 
where's the new Eve, right? Mm-hmm. And Thank eventually you, right, that right, leads right, right. you to the church. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll come back continuing with Dr. Monica Miller, Sexuality and Authority in the Catholic Church. I'm Al Cresta. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. By asking for spiritual communion, we are acknowledging that the Holy Mass is the perfect, best way to worship God. The priest intercedes perfectly for us with God the Father because he acts in persona Christi. This is the time to see that through the priest's representation of Christ's sacrifice on Calvary, we are never separated from our Lord. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. The church isn't saying throw out the baby with the bathwater. Throw out all the media. Don't use the media. What the Pope is saying that make sure that what you are doing is enabling yourself and others to encounter Christ more deeply. And you can't do that unless you reach out. You have to reach out to God first. You have to encounter Him in the Eucharist, in that personal relationship. And then you pray, you reflect, and then you go. In my book, Beyond Sunday, Becoming a 24-7 Catholic, I talk about the three M's of faith, meeting, mercy, and mission. You meet and encounter Christ. You enter into a personal relationship with him. He gives you mercy. And then what do you do? You just sit there and say, oh, thanks, Jesus. See you later. No, you go out on mission exactly as the woman at the well did. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. In the midst of our culture today in this age of relativism which wants to grant Jesus some significance but not so much so we'll give him wise man, great leader, inspiring preacher, great teacher, prophet. You don't get that option when you claim to be God. What reasons do we have to believe that he is who he said he is? And it's important, again, to employ the use of our reason and to understand that faith is not blind. My faith 
And please, God, the faith of everyone here is not blind. It rests on something. It rests on a number of things, not least of which is my own experience of God, but it also has something substantial which can be claimed through history. We're not talking about a galaxy long, long ago, far, far away when we talk about Jesus. We're talking about a precise moment in history which has been testified to by countless testimonies, and you and I have access to them. Good afternoon. I'm Al Tressa. With me, Dr. Monica Miller. Our topic, sexuality and authority in the Catholic Church, a topic which uh, is really, for a generation uh, at least, has been uh, under attack and greatly distorted in popular conversation. Um, I did want to ask about um, male authority in the Church, and... um, Obviously, the the ministerial priesthood is uh, reserved for males. Right. Again, I I know you said you said it earlier, but restate it. Why is that the case? Well, if if Jesus um, has come as the bridegroom, uh, and his his own body uh, is the expression of his masculine love mm-hmm. for the church, and and the Eucharist itself is a nuptial meal. And while it may seem obvious, okay, well, we've got the male priest, but what again, what, what we need to appreciate is that the church, this is my argument, worships um, uh, as, as f- in a feminine way, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. That this, well, this doesn't mean that, that male uh, Christians, you know, baptized Christians become women, no. But <laughs> right. no more than you were a, a, a girl in the womb of your own mother. Right. You were, you were, if, you're, if you were conceived as a male child, that you were still, it, you, you were still being brought into life through a female. Right. Okay, but right. okay, so I think that's a good analogy. Yeah, I like that, yeah. But... The male priesthood. We have to. We have to, um, you know, get down to the to the to the the pure essence of the thing, um, as as we as we say in the in the Latin, uh, a priest is in persona Christi. We'll add the the fourth word, capitus. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In other words, the male priest is imaging Christ, the head, the head. to his body. The church, his yeah. bride. Yeah. So the these 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 nuptial. Uh, sexual symbols are very important. It is the expression of the covenant. This isn't just one way of understanding the relationship between God and his people. This is the way. Yes, yes. Uh, Unless we want to escape and go back to being Gnostics and just escape the, the sacramental order altogether and what it means for God to express himself in history. Yeah. Um, and he's chosen to do so through uh, human sexuality. The priest, as a member of the church, also participates in the universal priesthood, which, again, um, so there he is a member of Christ's body, but he's ordained to function in persona Christi Capitus, right? <laughs> yeah, there's this. I think it was Hans Urs von Balthasar um, when he was commenting on the on the uh, the all male priesthood. 
Um, and he and he he actually kind of had the jargon, if you want to use that word, of the 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 church is a is um, created according to a Marian yeah. model. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's the Petrine, which is the priesthood, right. the hierarchy, and then there's the Ecclesia, the church, which is Marian. Um, then so he 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 said, I think it's kind of clever. He said, "Well, you know, the church is actually the mother of her fathers. <laughs> Where are these priests coming from? Okay, right. they don't just drop out of the sky. They come through the mater ecclesia, the yeah. mother church. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, so uh, going back to Augustine." Um, he even says, and, and and he's not the only one. There's there's lots of church fathers who who uh, appreciate and have written on the feminine nature of the church. And Mater Ecclesia was one of their favorite ways of understanding the church, Mother Church, hmm. Mater Ecclesia. So Augustine uh, has a sermon uh, that he gave to catechumens. Okay, so let let me read this. Yeah, what he says. Yeah, here. I love it. Go ahead. He says. O you who are being born to the faith, whom the Lord has made, strive to be born in sound and healthful fashion, lest you be prematurely and disastrously delivered. Behold the womb of your mother, the church. Hmm. Behold how she labors in pain to bear you and to bring you forth into the light of faith. Do not, by your impatience, disturb your mother's body, and make narrow the passage of your delivery. I mean, it's like you're in the delivery room here, yes, okay? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and, and, and there's a there's a particular piece of furniture in every church that he will he calls the womb, or he he'll even uses the word the, the equivalent in Latin uterus. Mm-hmm. It's the baptismal the, the, font. Baptismal font. The baptismal right. font yeah. is the womb of the church, where yes. where the church, in union with God, mm-hmm. the Father. Is bringing new people, new, 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 birthing new lives. We're okay? regenerated Re- there. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And there's this amazing quotation from Saint Cyprian of Carthage. Now, he wrote a treatise in response to a schism, and so the treatise is on the unity of the church. Mm-hmm. And one of the f- most famous things that came out of this treatise, he says, be- be- regarding unity, right? You cannot have God for your father. If you have not the church for your mother, <laughs> love it. <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah. it's just so it's so incredibly rich and um, and, and, and consistent, right? This whole thing coheres together over mm. over centuries. Yes, I mean this is this is not something which um, is just. Uh, you know, we're, we, while we may be gaining greater insight with each generation, um, what we're talking about today in 2023 is what Augustine was talking yes. about. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know? oh, absolutely, exactly. It's the same reality. Right. Um, because it's the truth. It's the truth of what the church is in relation to God and to Jesus. Yeah, World War I didn't affect it. World War II didn't affect it, right? Uh, the reforms of the... 17th century, 16th and 17th century. It it is it is a reality uh, that we Augustine uh, says we have basically three sets of parents. We have our original parents, Adam and Eve, Mm -hmm. and then we have our physical parents, our mom and our dad. Well, he says those are the parents of death. But (laughs) 
Okay, okay. The, well, in, in the sense that we are born, you know, Adam and Eve gave us original sin, then we're born in, you know, with original sin. But, but we have two, we have another set of parents, the parents of life. And that would be a God the Father and 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 the church, our mother, yeah. who birth us into new life and and even into actually e- eternal life um, through the through the baptismal font. They act; they're partners in the generation of new lives. I'm going to throw a question at you. It just came in from a caller uh, okay. off air, and uh, I just saw it myself. Brian just get it, gave it to me. And um, how does contraception? Mm impact the culture's understanding of Mother Church? I mean, that's a great question. That's a very good question. That's a very thoughtful question. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I get, you know, the church, the the problem here, of course, is that the church is not sterile. Um, Now, if we're we're rendering the female body uh, as as sterile, Mm -hmm. then... Then, in a, then in a sense, we've negated up to a, you know to a certain extent we've negated the the differences between the sexes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, and she said yeah. no, she's no longer life giving. Yeah, no longer life giving. Right. Yeah. That's a very good question. I like that. I have to give that, yeah. I have to give this some more thought. Yeah, this is a good one, and it, I, I thought I'd throw it out there. Uh, there's no quick answer to it, but I like the idea that um, it renders. Uh, so maybe church. we can't really appreciate the church's mother church if we don't appreciate ourselves, ladies, <laughs> yeah. as yeah. as uh, uh, as life givers as well. What does um, the what is male authority? Uh, quote in marriage uh, in society. Does that have any? Does this have anything to do with that? Yes, and and I we t- we touched on it a little a little bit uh, just a while ago in this interview, but a male authority has to be at the service of feminine authority. Um, and and again, I I would really encourage people. You, you might be able to get it for a dollar. I mean, I don't know if it's out of print; it would be a lot more. But George Gilder's book, yeah. uh, "Sexual Suicide." His book, Men in Marriage, is Men in Marriage, yeah. The only th- I, I th- little he, too much sociobiology there. Yeah, yeah. Men, I th- sexual suicide is the better okay. of the two. Okay. Um, but he says that men without women are lost. They don't know what to do with their energy. Yeah. They don't, and and often it's put to neg- neg- negative projects: crime, mm-hmm. drugs, suicide, dominance. As they uh, get older, suicide. Be, you know, he said male energy has to be put to the long-term biology of of um, feminine procreative powers, because the the woman will project the male into the future, and even this, even frankly, this I I think is. Um, is uh, is taught in in Genesis chapter two. Yeah. This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Yeah. Now Adam has identity. He knows who he is in relation to the woman who has has. If you go back to the original Hebrew word, the ezar, she is the ezar. E z e r. What does that mean? She's not just the suitable partner. She's not just the helpmate. She's not the assistant. She's the savior. She, Izar means uh, somebody who saves someone hmm. from the situation of extremity. 
Um, and so she saves him. And that's in again, that's in the narrative where we're, we're told there was something that wasn't good. Yes, yes. This is it is not good for the man yeah. to be alone. So yeah. that's the that's the antithesis of authentic living. So the introduction of the woman, someone like him but different mm-hmm. from him. Mm-hmm. She, the the woman, and this is what this is a, you know even goes into the what is the church that. The woman is the center of human communion. She creates human communion. And so the Catholic, and I argue the Catholic Church, as the Mater Ecclesia, uh, draws uh, uh, all of humanity toward yes. herself. And and that's why you have the, the Bernini columns, right, in the yeah. Vatican. And that's yes. the, those are the arms of the Mother Church embracing, embracing yeah. humanity, bringing everyone into yeah. the true unity. Yeah. Not the United Nations, not right. the Elks Club. Okay, right. the, the church, Catholic yeah. Church, is the primary instance of unity in the world. Yeah, Andre Lubach's book Catholicism really emphasizes this. Carl Adam and Spirit of Catholicism, same thing. Yes, yeah. in fact, I was going to quote something from De Lubach. Okay. okay, one of the greatest 20th century theologians, yep. and he's actually commenting on something that another great theologian said, and that would be Matthias Skibin. Yeah. But so this this quote about the Mother Church from De Lubach, he says, when Christians who when, when the Christian knows what he is saying, speaks of the church as his mother, he is not giving way to some sentimental impulse. He is expressing a reality. The motherhood of the, tru- of the church, wrote Skibin, is not an empty title. It is not a weak analogy of natural motherhood. It does not signify only that the church acts like a tender mother towards us. This motherhood of the church is as real as the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. Wow. <laughs> wow. As real as the supernatural life that exists in the children of God. Wow. Oh, that's this powerful stuff. So the motherness of the church, uh, actually, motherness isn't enough to say. She is mother. She is mother. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Right. As that the Eucharist is, is Jesus. Oh, that's, that's yes. So, yeah, motherhood begins with the, re- the relationship between God and His people, yeah. and that's what we celebrate in the Eucharist. That's why the the, the 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 church as bride in relation to uh, her bridegroom is something that is celebrated in the Eucharist, and that's why males are the priesthood is a male priesthood. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, get you know, getting getting back to to that, but. Uh, before we end, we only our, have about ten seconds. Okay. So. <laughs> well, the church is a mother in a lot of other ways. She feeds her children. She educates her children. And hey, folks, she also disciplines. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. Her, her children. So. Well, Monica, thanks. Great stuff. And again, um, the smaller version is the authority of women in the Catholic Church, but the big one is called sexuality and authority in the Catholic Church. And uh, you can still find uh, this bigger one. It's still yes. available uh, online. And then the authority of women in the Catholic Church is kind of the, the smaller version of it. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent stuff. I'm Al Cresta. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org 
A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Father Benedict Groeschel. I don't think people should have negative fears of God, but I think you should get a lump in your throat. You should feel excited. Suppose I was going to take you and introduce you to the Pope or to the President of some country or something. You might get a little lump in your throat. Forget it. Every day, you, I, live and move and have our being in the presence of God. These are the class of feelings we should have, and we should have them to an intense degree if we really had the sight of Almighty God. These feelings are the feelings which we shall have if we realize His presence. And in proportion, as we believe that He is present, we shall have them. And not to have them is not to realize, not to believe that God is present to us. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. You know, so it is the, the truths that uh, Monica's referring to. These are we're talking about reality. We're not talking about religion. We're talking about reality. This is this is the nature of the church. Uh, it's the nature of the covenant. It's nuptial. This was true in Saint Augustine, and it's true now. Uh, it lasts through the uh, generations. And it's really quite remarkable when you think of it that we can encounter the same reality that St. Augustine was talking about centuries ago. Because the church isn't what we make of it. The church is what Christ makes of it. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Well, thank you. Good being with you. And uh, let me tell you where we're headed today. But first of all, I want to give congratulations to a longtime member of the EWTN radio family, Mater Dei, excuse me, Mater Dei Radio in Portland and other great cities in Oregon, is celebrating an amazing 34 years of Catholic radio and 27 years with EWTN radio. So congrats to uh, Patrick Ryan and everyone at uh, Mater Dei Radio for all your friends here at EWTN radio. Let me tell you what we're doing in this hour. University of Pennsylvania President Liz McGill resigned from her position. This is days after she made unsatisfactory remarks about the rise of anti-Semitism on her campus. Um, This is a pretty notable 
conflict. You had the presidents of the University of Pennsylvania, again, Liz McGill, then you had the president of Harvard and the president of MIT uh, in a congressional hearing, and uh, they were asked uh, whether statements that uh, uh, genocide against the Jews, would a statement uh, calling for genocide against the Jews be the kind of campus hate speech um, that should be rebuked. And three of them danced around it and said, well, it depends on the context. We're going to play a little bit of that later. But Jay Green's going to join me uh, to discuss this, uh, this, this topic. He's Senior Research Fellow in the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. And his focus of his research examines the effects of education on character formation and civic values. It's, it's really quite an amazing incident that we saw in this uh, congressional hearing. So that's coming up. Uh, also, we're going to be joined by uh, Dr. Marianne Glendon, uh, again, professor of comparative law at Harvard. Uh, we are, yesterday was the 75th anniversary of the UN's declaration, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, really an important moment uh, in the history of the West's uh, cultural development. Uh, and we're going to ask Dr. Glendon uh, to explain to us what makes it so significant. And then we're going to talk about the sacraments, uh, what they really are. Theologian David Fagerberg joining us. But first, the headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Monday, December 11th. It's the feast of St. Pope Damasus I. Today's news is brought to you by the Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. Pope Francis has announced the Catholic Church's first World Day of Children. The Pope announcing on Friday that the Church will celebrate it next May. The Pope explained that the day will seek to answer the question, what kind of world do we wish to pass on to the children who are growing up? The special counsel prosecuting former President Trump wants the Supreme Court to immediately decide Trump's immunity claim. White House correspondent and lawyer John Decker describes the special counsel's strategy. I believe that Jack Smith wants this trial to begin before the election, and he wants the Supreme Court to answer that fundamental question about whether a former president is immune from criminal prosecution right away. Jack Smith is skipping a federal appeals court and is going directly for the Supreme Court to determine whether Trump is immune from prosecution for alleged crimes he committed while in office. Trump's legal team argues the case should be tossed because he has presidential immunity from Smith's indictment, which accuses Trump of entering multiple criminal conspiracies to overturn the results of the 2020 election. President Biden will host a meeting with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky at the White House tomorrow. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby telling reporters that the meeting comes at a time when Russian forces are ramping up attacks on civilian infrastructure in Ukraine. Zelensky's visit Tuesday comes at a critical moment in negotiations for emergency aid to Ukraine. And a new poll out by the Wall Street Journal puts former South Carolina Republican Governor Nikki Haley 17 points up over President Biden in a hypothetical race for the White House. But Haley still trails Trump by more than 40 points in a recent poll for the Republican nomination for president. From your AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. 
The U.S. House uh, called the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and the University of Pennsylvania to a hearing to address the rise of anti-Semitism on their campuses. And uh, during the course of that uh, hearing, uh, Representative Elise Stefanik from uh, New York's 21st Congressional District asked them uh, if, in fact, a call for the genocide of the Jews would violate their campus's speech policies. And the answers of all three presidents was shockingly uh, unsatisfying. In fact, uh, University of Penn President Liz McGill has now resigned uh, after her performance here. This is just a little brief clip from there to to refresh your memory of the incident. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate MIT's code of conduct or rules regarding bullying and harassment, yes or no? If targeted at individuals not making public statements. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment, yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. It does not depend on the context. The answer is yes, and this is why you should resign. These are unacceptable answers across the board. And joining me right now to talk about that incident and more, uh, and why it seems so hard to condemn anti-Semitism, at least on college campuses now, uh, we've got Dr. Jay Green. He's a senior research fellow in the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. His research focuses on the effects of education on character formation and civic values. And uh, Jay, good to have you here again. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. It was a shocking performance, wasn't it? It was. I mean, I actually was watching it live. I, I don't know why I punished myself. <laughs> I watched the whole, the whole thing. And as it was happening, I was horrified. I couldn't believe that it was happening. And I think a lot of other people um, have looked at it and have taken away a very similar reaction, uh, that they simply cannot believe that some of our leading educational institutions um, have such weak um, leadership and are unable to take clear moral stands on issues or, or frankly, to enforce their policies in consistent ways with respect to Jews. Yeah. Why, why do you think that is? I know that's one of those large and lumpy questions, but go ahead, have at it. Sure. So I, I think, you know, the main, there are two problems. First, these individuals, I think, are weak leaders because they're not guided by um, uh, some sort of deep conviction. They're, they're not guided by a set of principles or rooted in some great tradition or religious text, but they're really guided, I believe, by uh, just uh, pure uh, personal ambition. And so they are rudderless morally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say that not not because I know each of these people individually, although I did actually go to grad school with Claudine Gay. Oh, okay. Um, That's but, she's but, president of Harvard, right? She is, right. Yeah. She's the yeah. president of Harvard. But, but because university you know, bureaucrats, university administrators, unfortunately um, 
select and reward this type of personality. Uh, and that's who you see most often in these positions of leadership, especially in highly selective universities. So I think that's one problem here is that we're being led by the wrong people. And we need to be picking different kinds of people who have some sort of commitment to a great tradition, uh, some set of moral principles that we can recognize. Um, The second problem is the infection of critical theory or critical race theory um, uh, in our leading educational institutions. So they believe um, that contrary to the American tradition, that everyone is created equally in the eyes of God uh, and deserving of equal treatment, uh, under the law, they believe that actually everyone could be classified by group into groups based on their identities, their ethnic, racial, or sexual identities, and that they could be classified as oppressors or oppressed. Yep. With the oppressors deserving the harsh treatment they receive, and the oppressed deserving restitution for collective or historic wrongs. And once once you go down this path of thinking that there are two categories of people and they deserve different treatment, it's inevitable that Jews get placed in the category that deserves harsher treatment, and then this provides a rationalization, a justification for that rougher treatment. And that's why they were treating Jewish groups worse than they've treated other groups in the past. Yeah, yeah. It's stunning to me... um that they had so accepted this oppressor-oppressed uh, dichotomy. Um, it's as though they're completely unaware of the, the history uh, of Israel um, since 1948. And it's just, I don't know why they would not be able to make the statement uh, that calling for the genocide of the Jews is unacceptable on campus. It violates speech policy, uh, while at the same time maintaining a concern for Palestinian people. I, I don't see why you choose one over the other here uh, and somehow turn the Jews into the oppressor so you can say anything you want about them. Right. I think you can apply a consistent moral principle, um, which, again, once you embrace critical theory of oppressor and oppressed, um, you have a very hard time maintaining a consistent moral principle yeah. because you've now adopted the belief that different people deserve different treatment, not because of anything they've done individually, but simply because of who they are. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, Liz McGill looks like she's resigned, and... Uh, do you expect any changes at MIT or Harvard? So, um, you know, there have been some new developments. Uh, Christopher Rufo uh, from the Manhattan Institute yep. uh, last night um, released information that documents examples of plagiarism in Claudine Gay's uh, dissertation. She, again, she's the president of Harvard currently. Um, and I would have said that based solely on her testimony, that she might still have survived, even though uh, President McGill was was booted out at Penn. I thought Gabe would survive because she's very recently appointed, she's a black woman, and mm-hmm. I think the institution is very committed to the idea of having a black woman president, and I, I think removing her after a few months would have been very difficult for them. But now that there's 
uh, credible evidence of plagiarism in her academic record. And given that her academic record is remarkably thin for someone in her position, she she only has 10 journal articles in her entire career mm. and no books published, which is that's a, <laughs> about what an accomplished scholar produces in a year. Yeah. Um, Publish or perish is gone, I guess. Well, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, um, you know, so so it's it's a. I think that she is vulnerable now. Um, I think um, the trustees will try to hang on to her if they can, but we'll see how much pressure is brought to bear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, as far as MIT goes, I, I think um, Sally Kornbluth um, might be in the strongest position of all of them, and. Um, uh, also in part because uh, the, MIT has been more consistent in, in being basically being permissive about all kinds of speech. So they've been the least inconsistent in their application of their principles, even though I don't agree with their principles. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so when college students who sympathize with the Palestinians chant from the river to the sea, do they even know what they're talking about? Well, most people who chant things to protest have no idea what they're talking about. So, I mean, there there are lots of videos of being of people being asked, you know, which river, um, and they have no idea. Um, and sometimes people get mixed up and they start saying from the mountains to the sea, and they don't know which mountains that would be anyway. Um, so, I don't I don't think people have a very good idea of of what those words literally represent. Nor do they understand figuratively that they represent essentially the annihilation of Jews um, in the land of Israel between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Um, that is what that is calling for very explicitly. Similarly, the, the chance of uh, intifada revol- there's only one solution, intifada revolution, mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. a clear reference to final solution right. and a similar call for elimination of Jews. These, these are genocidal sl- chants even if the people chanting them don't explicitly or consciously know their genocidal intent. Yeah. It, it, uh, so they don't, assuming that, then, <laughs> assuming that, they probably don't have no idea what the 1988 Hamas charter actually says, and it was repeated in the, I think, 2017 revision, uh, which is that Hamas exists, I think it's the third paragraph in the 88 Charter, uh, exists to uh, obliterate the nation Israel. I mean, that's... Right. Yeah. That, so uh, there's no... They, this they is a neighbor who doesn't want you to exist. Right. Well, I, look, some of the people involved in the protests know that and consciously want it. And, uh, but a lot of evil is done by people um, who basically act with reckless indifference yeah. towards evil. That is, they're, they're happy to go along with it uh, without really paying much attention to what evil is being perpetrated. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's, they, get, they get caught up in the, the, the moment, I guess, and like to feel that they're engaged in some sort of heroic action, even, as though, even while they're re- making blatantly immoral uh, promises for the future. Um, are, are, is America generally uh, having this kind of anti-Semitism? I mean, America usually had a good reputation uh, for not being overly anti-Semitic. Think of, uh, 
Yeah, I think America is doing a really pretty good job yeah. Um, yeah. with respect to both Israel uh, abroad and Jews here in the United States. I mean, there are problems, uh, as there are always are, you know, with lots of different issues. But, um, you know, recent polling just today in the Wall Street Journal shows overwhelming American support for Israel and sympathy with Israeli actions, yeah. even in this conflict. So I, I think, you know, we always have things to work on, but America is good at our, our university that we're in trouble. Yeah. Okay. Jay, thanks so much. Good talking with you again. Thank you. You too. Jay Green is Senior Research Fellow in the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation, commenting on the uh, outrageous refusal of these college presidents. The wisdom of Mother Angelica. I come from the other side of the tracks. See? <laughs> My uncle used to have slot machines. <laughs> Put one nickel in and it's emptied. And I brought him home in a bag. And my mother looked at me. Where did you get all that money? I said, I won him. You didn't win him. He fixed the machine. I didn't care if he fixed the machine or not. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Sharing meals as a family isn't just about nourishing our bodies. It's about nourishing our spirits and relationships, too. A large body of research points to the many ways that family meals boost the well-being of kids and parents alike. It can be tough for families to consistently make time to sit down and eat together. But when we do, it's like we're saying to one another, spending time with you is one of the most important parts of my day. In a way, the table that our family gathers around starts to look a little like the altar at church. It becomes a place for practicing gratitude experiencing sharing, and building communion. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, visit catholichom.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popcheck, but you can call me Family Man. And hey, could you pass the peas? Thanks. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit catholiccounselors.com. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? 
In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Yesterday marked the 75th anniversary of the UN's Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, It is one of the most important uh, documents of the 20th century. We're going to learn more about it uh, when we're joined uh, by Dr. Marianne Glendon, who is a professor emeritus of law at Harvard University, former U.S. ambassador to the Holy See. She also served as the chair of the U.S. State Department's Commission on Unalienable Rights and has authored several books, including A World Made New, Eleanor Roosevelt and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Marianne, thank you for joining me again. It's a real pleasure to hear your voice, Al. So let's, uh, let's talk about the significance of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I think uh, in a piece that you wrote, um, you said it is the single most important reference point for cross-cultural discussion of human freedom and dignity in the world today. I think you wrote that, uh, what, uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Is it still that important? Well, Al, I think uh, this 75th anniversary, for the first time, is one that has passed in relative silence. Mm. And uh, I think the reason for that is that the great human rights project, with all of its successes in the late 20th century, is faltering. And uh, the consensus that was achieved in 1948, well, let's say it's not a perfect document, no document of that sort is ever going to be perfect, but it was remarkable that in 1948, the then members of the United Nations came to a consensus without a single dissenting vote, their abstentions, but no dissents, on a very small core of fundamental principles of human decency. And it's sad that today that consensus seems to be faltering. Is, is that because there are Uh, large nation-states like uh, uh, China um, who reject the the idea of human rights as basically a Western creation? Well, I think that is a large part of it, that uh, there are great powers in the world that uh, simply don't believe in human rights and are more and more overt about it. Mm -hmm. But that's not the only factor. I think um, the human rights movement, in a way, became victim of its own successes 
in the 20th century, and it started looking around for new rights. And that introduced a whole lot of controversy that, in the end, weakened the movement. And then you have the fact that the great institutions that were supposed to protect human rights, um, the U.N., and uh, its affiliated institutions, that uh, they've been subject to a good deal of institutional decline, to say the least. Mm -hmm. So it's a combination of factors, but I think we tend to forget how much is at stake right now in the world. We've got regional conflicts that are very dangerous and threatening, and if we can't get back to some kind of agreement on a few fundamental principles, we're in very big trouble. Yeah. I mean, we've got uh, unrest, of course, in uh, Islamic uh, world, uh, we got the, the, the communist uh, party in China, and uh, there's just a lot of uh, inability to find uh, consensus on many things. This was after the Second World War, so there was a there was a, a felt need to come up with some statement of universal rights that could potentially avoid. Uh, conflict in the future who it's amazing to me that they came up with a body of rights like this you mentioned the unanimity of those who participated though they could come up with a list of rights were they able to come up with a a justification for those rights Well, they never did uh, provide it with an adequate foundation, and that was what John Paul II always pointed out. But I think uh, you mentioned that why did it happen after the Second World War? Mm -hmm. In a way, that was the moment, a prime moment, for people to say, whoa, let's step back here and see if we can have some kind of rules-based international order. So is it really going to take another conflagration? Is it really going to take more? horrors and atrocities to get to that point again? I certainly hope not. And I want to say something about Islam, because I do, on this anniversary, I I do look for rays of hope, and I think there's one ray of hope that is not yet well known in the West, but is potentially very important, and that is that the largest Muslim political organization in the world, a hundred million members based in Indonesia, Mm -hmm. is promoting a kind of tolerant, inclusive form of Islam. We don't hear about it. We only hear about Islam, a certain form in the Middle East. But this is a huge organization that is openly challenging the Middle Eastern version. And most interesting to us Catholics, Al, is that they have formally uh, said in their documents that they think Islam needs to undergo something like Vatican II. Wow. Isn't that something? <laughs> That's saying quite a bit. Yeah. 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 And Indonesia is the largest uh, Muslim-dominated nation, right, in the world. It, it is the largest Muslim country, and it is the largest Muslim democracy. Uh, so, and the, Islam is, and the Indonesian's government is fully behind this project of humanitarian Islam, because something else that's important about Indonesia is that it's a pluralistic society. It has Hindus and other religions, mm-hmm. and so uh, from the very beginning of its founding, it announced itself as a, a, a pluralistic, inclusive society. So that's something hopeful to watch. Yeah, very good. I'm glad you brought that up. 
looking at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, how, do, how do we read it? Are, is this a list of enumerated rights, or is this something we should read as a whole, with each part reinforcing the others? Well, you sound as though you've read it, Al, and so you've probably (laughs) noticed that it isn't like our Bill of Rights, and it's not like other Bills of Rights. It's not a list that was constructed as an integrated document with all the parts related to one another, so Mm -hmm. it's not an a la carte menu. And Mrs. Roosevelt said something really important when she presented it to the U.N. She said, it's very important to know what is the nature of this document. It is a non binding document, and it is a declaration of principles about rights. So principles, it's a declaration of principles that are related to one another and that are in the service, as the preamble says, of a quest for better standards of life and larger freedom. And it's that uh, that sort of got lost during mm-hmm. the Cold War. The United States vaunted the political rights, and the Soviet Union vaunted the economic and social principles, and that started what we have now, which is, you know, a thousand different special interests claiming that they're all international human rights. Yeah, yeah, and if everything uh, is a right, nothing is right. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Tell me how, I mean, how uh, wide was participation in this process, how do they come up with the list? How many nations, how many spokespeople were involved? Well, there were two bodies that were involved. One was the UN Human Rights Committee, which just took all the existing rights declarations in the world and looked at them. And then there was a committee on which Jacques Maritain served to look into the theoretical bases, and they sent a questionnaire to prominent thinkers and philosophers and religious leaders. And they found to their surprise when that questionnaire, the results came in, that there was a remarkable similarity among cultures and religions and traditions concerning just a few fundamental principles. And that's what they took as their basis. So so they consulted uh, Hindu uh, nations or Hindu uh, rights documents, Islamic? Hindu, Muslim, Catholic, Protestant, yes. And and, uh, Confucianism, because at that time, uh, nationalist China had a very influential representative on the Human Rights Committee. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this was this was not a narrow uh, outlook. This this was not just a quote Eurocentric document. Well, you know, a lot of criticism was made, much of it in bad faith, calling it a Western document. Right. And uh, But you know what I find now, when I hear people use that epithet, Western, uh, I, I, what I hear is people from developing countries who, they, it's not that they resent the document, they resent the way that Western interest groups are trying to force ideas mm. on them in the name of human rights. Yeah. And I think, um, again, uh, trying to be hopeful, I think more and more there is... Um, a sense that what's really important about an idea is not who had it first or where it came from. Right. Is it a good idea or is it a bad idea? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, of course, we know we've had people who fighting the issue of reproductive rights, uh, uh, which has been uh, on a number of uh, 
nations' minds, uh, where they try to uh, force contraception and abortion on uh, various nations. Uh, and if that's what people are thinking is uh, Western, um, yeah. know, Pope Francis, what's he call that? It, it's existential coloni- colonizing or something of that sort, he says. Ideological colonization. Yes. Absolutely, yeah. yes, that's what it is. And so I think, you know, defenders of the Universal Declaration uh, have to uh, realize that they'll be more successful if they just stick to basics to a few fundamental principles that can find grounding in most of the world's religious and philosophical traditions. Yeah. yeah. Now, Pope John Paul II, uh, again, made human dignity uh, the centerpiece of his teaching, on uh, Catholic social teaching. Um, is human dignity at the center of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? I would say it's the closest that the Universal Declaration gets to having a foundational principle. But uh, you can see that um, it, uh, even though it said that, John Paul II said you really have to build uh, philosophical and anthropological foundations because dignity has now been hijacked by people who want to say there's a right to die with dignity. Right. Uh, right. So there are projects going on uh, to um, to put that that set of principles on a firmer philosophical basis. But if if I may say so, I think decisive in this whole uh, area is going to be the role of religious groups and religious leaders. Okay. And uh, Mrs. Roosevelt, you understood the importance of religion in this document, right? Yes, very much so. Yeah. Well, Marianne, we're out of time, unfortunately, but thank you again for your help, and uh, uh, we'll talk again, Lord willing. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Are you longing to hear God's voice? Lord, teach me to pray. The free Ignatian prayer series will open your heart to His voice, to the peace you are seeking, and the only love that fulfills the human heart, Jesus. God is calling you to true joy, knowing Jesus personally. Lord, teach me to pray is free. Go to lordteachmetopray.com, click on the red box, order the Lord, teach me to pray series now. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844 398 9399. That's 844 398 9399. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? 
send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Father Benedict Rochelle. I don't think people should have negative fears of God, but I think you should get a lump in your throat. You should feel excited. Suppose I was going to take you and introduce you to the Pope or to the President of some country or something. You might get a little lump in your throat. Forget it. Every day, you, I, live and move and have our being in the presence of God. These are the class of feelings we should have, and we should have them to an intense degree if we really had the sight of Almighty God. These feelings are the feelings which we shall have if we realize his presence. And in proportion, as we believe that he is present, we shall have them. And not to have them is not to realize, not to believe that God is present to us. The people you know and trust are on EWTN. Why does the Catholic Church obligate its members to attend Mass on Sundays? For Christians, Sunday The first day of the week, or the eighth day, replaces the seventh day, the Sabbath, as the day to reserve for worshiping God. The Sabbath represents the completion of the first creation. When Jesus Christ arose from the dead on Sunday, he inaugurated the new creation. Thus, Sunday became the Lord's Day and is now the foremost holy day of obligation in the universal church, as we are told in the Catholic Catechism. We are bound to attend Mass under pain of grave sin unless there is a serious reason for not doing so. Sundays are also called to be a day of rest. Christians are bound to abstain from work which impedes worshiping God and the joy of the Lord's Day. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. I came across uh, an article, What the Sacraments Really Are, earlier this week, and uh, it's by David Fagerberg and showed up at Catholic Exchange. And I thought it was such a rich article that I wanted to see if David could take the time to share it with us on the program. David Fagerberg is a Professor Emeritus of Liturgical Studies in the Department of Theology at the University of Notre Dame and is the author of several books, including Liturgical Mysticism and Liturgical Dogmatics. David, good to have you back. Thanks. Hi. Glad to be here. Let's start where you start in the article, which is that many times when we talk about the sacraments, we're trapped by our own metaphors, by our own language. Tell us, give us a little bit more on that. Uh, Being persons that live in a body, we uh, think in bodily terms, up, down, left, right, front and back. And I think that... uh, I don't uh, complain about that. That's the way we're made. (laughs) But uh, one must be aware of it. Uh, When we apply it to spiritual things, uh, we know that we're uh, making metaphors and uh, symbols and analogies. So uh, my observation was just one day to realize that uh, it's easy for us to think about grace as if it's in something, the way beer is in a bottle or mm-hmm. uh, medicine is in a pill. And uh, that's perfectly fine one way to think about sacrament. Grace is in this when we receive it. But uh, I just wondered if there's others, other ways to uh, 
think about it, maybe God comes out to us, comes over to us, comes down to us. There's another uh, up-down uh, measure. If, uh, if, you, if you really are in love with Christ in the sacraments, then uh, you think about him in uh, as many possible ways as you can, and each of them is rewarding. And the sacraments are not some sort of barrier uh, between us and Christ. Right. Uh, I suppose that that's a leftover problem with a bad sort of a symbol language. Uh, Here, instead of me, I'll give you this uh, gesture, this symbol. Um, The uh, sacraments are a bridge and not a gate. They're a way by which Christ comes and by which we're invited to come. Uh, They are a... um, point of encounter. So instead of uh, getting the empty pill box, uh, you receive Christ himself in the sacraments. Yeah. So you write, a sacrament is how God comes out to us from the holy gates of the heavenly Jerusalem. A sacrament is how God comes over to us from the emperor's country beyond the sea. A sacrament is how God comes across to us, overarching from the parousia at the end of history to our present moment. And you go down with a number of sentences of that sort, uh, which I think, again, stretches our understanding uh, of sacrament. Uh, You know, we have, of course, the the catechism uh, definition, uh, which uh, very simply is that a sacrament... uh, the sacraments are efficacious signs of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church by which divine life is dispensed to us. Uh, again, that's kind of the minimalistic uh, definition uh, for sacrament, but we can enter much more deeply into it. You need those baselines to uh, make sure that one doesn't uh, color too far outside the box. Right. But uh, it is... I think, uh, interesting to, uh, in meditating on sacraments, uh, imagine uh, different sorts of pictures. I included a line here from one of my uh, professors whose uh, most amusing definition of theology was firing where the enemy is last sighted. (laughs) By the time uh, you throw your net of logical propositions across the sand dune, Aslan will already be gone. Um, you can't catch him. And so uh, there's always this sensation that uh, God is ahead of us and drawing us forward. And I think that's uh, the other thing I was trying to pull uh, through in this um, reflection article, is that uh, sacraments make us more hungry. They don't so fill us that uh, we're satisfied. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some appetites are ended when they're fed, but other appetites increase when they're fed. And in the sacraments, uh, we're fed with the presence of Christ, which increases our desire for him, and it will, uh, I hope, continue to increase uh, right up to the threshold of beatitude. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, when, when, when you notice that God has disappeared from your sight as you turn to him, what, what do you do to continue the chase? The uh, image there comes from a uh, hymn from Simeon, the new theologian, and what he does is to sit down uh, where he is and wait for uh, the Master to uh, uh, appear again. When we uh, traveled with our kids in Europe, 
and the uh, subway trains were so packed. We had a rule that if you get on and we aren't there, get off at the next station, we'll meet you there. Hmm. If uh, somehow we get on and you get left behind, stay where you are, we'll come back to you. <laughs> uh, this is a sort of a picture that I have uh, from Simeon. Uh, he called me to repentance, and when he ran, I ran after him like a hound chasing a rabbit. Uh, Augustine talks about God being the hound of heaven chasing us. In this case, Simeon has reversed it. We're the hound, and God is the rabbit luring us after him. And then when he went far and hid himself, when God went too far ahead of us, I didn't lose hope. I just uh, stopped there in the place where I found myself. I sat and groaned and wept and cried. It occurred to me in reading those hymns of Simeon that sometimes that's our spiritual life as well. Uh, there are uh, opportunities to be consoled and filled, but there's also a uh, spirituality surrounding the sacraments in which we sometimes are waiting on God. Uh, he's okay with that. Mm -hmm. uh, the virtue of patience is uh, also one that he gives. So then uh, he sees him, Simeon sees him again, and he ran vigorously and succeeded in just grasping the fringe of his garment. He stopped a bit, but then he took off again, because uh, you'll never grasp this God fully. The uh, tension between the transcendent and the imminent mm -hmm. is uh, at work here. Well, the sacraments are one of the ways, perhaps the premier way, that God uh, draws near in his imminence. I thought one should probably also keep the uh, condition of God's transcendence in our sacramental theology. You you also write that um, the sacraments uh, are uh, not exceptions to our daily life, but they permeate our daily life with the kingdom. Could you elaborate on that? I'm uh, emeritus retired last year, and so I find myself uh, thinking backward more than I ever have before. <laughs> Uh, I think that uh, providence is a uh, doctrine best understood in the rearview mirror. Mm -hmm. When I think back over my uh, writing, I realize that a uh, constant theme has been somehow connecting the sacred to the profane. Yeah. What goes on inside the temple with what goes on uh, outside and in the world. My uh, doctor father was Aidan Kavanaugh, and his definition in class of liturgy was doing the world the way the world was meant to be done. Mm. Your life should be liturgical. You should live a liturgical life. You should liturgize God at all times. And you find that in a variety of uh, different uh, saints and spiritual leaders. Uh, if that's the case, then what happens in a ritual form with rubrics and sacraments inside the temple should have some version uh, outside the temple in a uh, lived mystical form. Mm -hmm. uh, liturgical theology is asking what happens in liturgy. Liturgical mysticism is asking what happens to us in liturgy. Yeah. What happens to us is something that uh, doesn't get left behind in the narthex, comes with us across the threshold. I've uh, increasingly thought about the uh, narthex as a permeable membrane 
you know, the early church spoke about the uh, narthex representing the world, the nave is the church, and then the uh, sanctuary is heaven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the uh, fire of God, as it came down at the burning bush or at inscribing the uh, Ten Commandments, that fire of Mount Tabor lands on the altar. It uh, imbues us with its light there, the Christians in the nave. When you leave and go through the membrane of the narthex, uh, you're supposed to carry that back with you. And then, eight days later, because liturgy happens every eighth day, you bring the world back with you and offer it up to God. So there's this uh, inhaling and exhaling, a respiration that goes on. The sacraments are part of that as well. Uh, baptism sets us in that uh, respiration, and uh, confirmation inspires us with our apostolic outreach. Uh, marriage is the domestic church uh, lived in a home. Everything that happens inside uh, should happen outside. What happens microcosmically should happen macrocosmically. So that's been an ongoing um, concern, uh, project, thought, project of mine uh, to how the uh, liturgy isn't just boxed up and left behind. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, so, so, I mean, would you say that that is a sacramental view of life or a liturgical view of life? <laughs> You uh, tapped onto a uh, another joke that I have used in my <laughs> class lectures. I don't have any classroom that tell these jokes to anymore, but uh, I used to uh, say to them, if uh, I was ever in a um, in a novel where there was some riddle that I had to answer in order to cross the bridge, I think the uh, riddle that would be given me is. Are sacraments liturgical, or is liturgy sacramental? <laughs> yeah. And in a good Catholic fashion, I'd want to answer yes, but of course we'd have to uh, work that through. <laughs> sacraments are liturgical, and that liturgy is the uh, glorification of God and the sanctification of man. That's what liturgy is. Mm-hmm. That's what sacraments do. Yeah. Liturgy is sacramental because it's an activity of man, but it's the work of God. So liturgy itself is a uh, work of, uh, as a divine work in which we uh, participate. Yes. Well, I hear the music coming up. Uh, David, I want to thank you once again for joining me and uh, for all your work. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. David Fagerberg, What the Sacraments Really Are, we'll have it posted for you at the website. We'll also have David's books available in the online bookstore. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families, along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. So when you see these different media outlets working directly in conjunction or conclusion with the government to suppress stories, 
What does that say to us about the reliability or lack thereof of the secular media? And then this is combined with a report that came out, a survey that was done on media executives. They interviewed 75 media leaders around the country, and they're saying we're done with objectivity. Well, that's not exactly a news flash, but the fact that they're claiming that objectivity is just no longer necessary and we are elitists, we know better, and this is what we're going to do is frightening. And this is one of the reasons that we stress the importance of having outlets such as the Register and EW10 News Nightly and the World Over and Catholic News Agency and EW10 News In Depth. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Well, good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, and I want to give thanks to the great work being done in Portland, Oregon, and other cities in, in Oregon by Mater Dei Radio. They've been there 34 years bringing a power, Catholic radio to the region, and 27 years as uh, an affiliate of EWTN. So uh, great work, Patrick Ryan. I'll tell you, it takes, it takes persistence, constancy, and patience to do this kind of work. So congratulations to Patrick Ryan and everyone else who's supporting him there at uh, Modern Day Radio. From all your friends here at EWTN, Patrick, thanks. Let me say that all of our conversations today, and they were some rich ones, uh, you can follow up on by going to the Cresta Guest Archives at AveMariaRadio.net. We'll have their articles that played into the interviews and also uh, possible contact information on our guests. And then, of course, uh, in the online bookstore, you were able to pick up the books that we discussed on this program today. Uh, again, uh, David Fagerberg's book on liturgical mysticism, uh, Marianne Glendon's book on uh, Eleanor Roosevelt and the development of the U.N. Uh, Declaration on Human Rights. Uh, we'll have follow-up information, of course, on my conversation with Dr. Monica Miller, and her books, uh, both available, will be there in the uh, online bookstore at AveMariaRadio.net. So head on over there. Also, a reminder, coming up on Thursday, we're going to do our annual Christmas book uh, giving program. So I'll ask you to lay out two, three books that you would recommend to Christian the Afternoon listeners for Christmas gift giving this season. So again, that's coming up on Thursday. Also tell people about it. It's a fun program. I look forward to it. I hope you do. It'll be this Thursday. I'm Al Cresta. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. 
To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.